My friend Adam Hamilton wrote this book. Uh, I mentioned in the video that, that uh, we would have copies of his book for you, and we will tomorrow. They, we thought they were coming yesterday. They're not coming until tomorrow, but we'll have them out tomorrow. Um, you can come by and pick one up, or you can pick it up on Sunday. Shelly is usually in here selling books on Sunday. Yes, Shelly? Are, are you usually in here selling? Shelly? Hello, Shelly. It's God calling. Yes. Um, uh, you'll be able to sell these books on Sunday uh, to folks, yes. So if you want to come on Sunday at 9 o'clock or 10 well, or 9 or 11 o'clock, you can, you can pick up Adam's book. I think it's $24, something, something like that. Uh, I want to let you know that um, uh, he owes me money because he got this idea from me. I preached a sermon series 10 years ago uh, on this idea that we're doing for Bible study instead called That's Not in the Bible. And Adam heard one of the sermons, and he called me up and said, hey, that's really good. Tell me more about your idea. And we talked some more. He said, I'm going to do a series, too. I said, great. And then a year later, he had a book, which is really irritating. I mean, he's a smart guy. He's, he's, in fact, by the way, he's in, he's in town. He's not in town now, but he was in town the last couple of days. I couldn't get a chance to see him because he's been speaking at Methodist churches all over um, central Ohio. And right now, tonight, he's speaking at a big Methodist church up in uh, Cleveland. Um, and he also told me in a text early this morning that he's quoted me three times and no one booed or yelled or walked out or anything. So uh, it was kind of kind of fun to, to hear that as well. All right, this is the, the title of this series is called That's Not in the Bible. And it's really kind of one of my favorite topics to talk about with people because there's so many things. Um, so there's so much bad theology that's out there. People just assume, well, that's in the Bible and I guess we just should ignore it or we're progressives and we don't pay attention to that sort of thing or, or whatever. But it's, it's also really helpful to name some of these things and call them out for what they are because oftentimes, as Adam notes in his, in his book, which he's titled Half Truths, sometimes they're almost more dangerous because they're half true. If something's so patently false, and ridiculous. It doesn't get in the way of our lives normally. Um, but these kind of sound religious. They sort of sound like they might be in the Bible. And they're also part of our popular, popular culture. Let's go, let's go to what tonight's topic is. Everything happens for a reason. How many of you have heard this before? <clears throat> how many of you, uh, no, I won't ask, I was going to say, how many of you have said this to someone before? Don't, don't, uh, don't raise your hand if, if, uh, if you have. Um, I hear it all the time. And I'll, I'll get emails. I'll be stopped at the door. I'll have somebody come by my office for a visit, and they'll say, I know, and they begin like that, I know everything happens for a reason. And then they go on to explain whatever it is in their life that is unreasonable and terrible or awful or just can't possibly be from the, the hand of, of God. <clears throat> so why, why, why this then? Why, why do people go that direction? Well, number one, it feels comforting. It feels like, well, this is a terrible situation, but somehow this is happening, and God's going to use it, and it's going to be okay, and everybody's going to be fine at the, at the end. That's, that's one of the reasons. Another one is um, people like to believe that there is some kind of a plan, even, even if it would be strange for God to be like a puppeteer, uh, guiding our hands and our thoughts and our actions and all that sort of thing, people still like to think that somehow there's this giant chess player in the sky who's moving the pieces and, and making all these things uh, uh, happen in a certain way. We just can't understand all of it. Uh, other people have said to me, you know, I've heard it so often, I've assumed it must be true. I just hear this so many times, it just has to be true. I mean, isn't it true? And then they can often come up with an example in their life. Well, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Uh, um, and that seems to, to um, 
that work for them. Other people say to me that it, sound, it just sounds uh, re religious. One of the things I, I won't do tonight, but if you buy Adam's book or read Adam's book, you can find this in his book. He talks about kind of the extreme of this view. On the one side, it's, it's uh, predestination or determinism. Um, you know, predestination is the idea that God has set everything in motion. It's all been predetermined. It's all been predestined. Everything that's happened in your life is already done. God already knew it was all going to happen before it, before it happened. And that's really a disturbing thing. The other side of it is uh, deism. You know, many of our founding fathers were deists. Uh, they believed God was sort of like the, the, the eternal clockmaker. God, God built all of creation, then just got, kind of stepped back and, and is, is not involved at all. Adam's idea, and I concur with him mostly, is that somewhere in between is how God works in our lives. For example, I'm going to say more about something that Adam calls uh, God incidences. I'll, I'll get to that at the, at the end. But in my own ordination paper that I wrote for, before I was ordained by the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in Northern California, I talked about my call to ministry. And I described it as though I was looking in the rearview mirror of my car. Looking back on my life, I could see people and places and things that happened that seemed to make sense, like there was a gentle nudge from God. Or, or a, a person put in my place, in my, in my presence, who spoke words that encouraged me to do this, etc. Now, if I, I also believe that if I'd said no to that call, I'm not going to be in trouble from God. Something bad's not going to happen. But looking back and seeing the way my life unfolded, what well, felt very clear to me that I, that I had this call. Now, not everything that happened in my life happened for that reason, though. And that's, that's part of the, uh, the, the story here. So to, to illustrate, let me, let me tell you a couple of hard stories uh, on how difficult it is to make this work. Because as soon as you talk about a young person or a child, there's no way that everything happens for a reason can stand. I was a youth minister in, in uh, the First Christian Church in Concord, California. It was 1988. I'd been out of seminary for a year. I'd been ordained for about six months at that point. When I got a call from a kid in my youth group, her neighbor, a girl who came to, to church once in a while with her, was killed in a car wreck. They don't have a church because she's come to our church. They're wondering if you could do the, the service. I said, of, of, of course I will. I went and met with the family. The girl was killed, was really an adult woman. She was 19 years old. Uh, she was going to a party. Her neighbor uh, loaned her his car. He knew she was going to this party. This party was a big deal in her life, and he wanted her to drive his car. It was a Camaro, a really nice Camaro. And she was thrilled to drive this cherry red sports car uh, about 30 miles away from, from Concord. Concord's in the East Bay, across the bridge from San Francisco. <clears throat> At the party, she was drinking. She apparently used some cocaine. She was pretty high on cocaine and had, had consumed a lot of alcohol and on the way home was driving very fast, probably over 100 miles an hour. On the freeway just out, that leads into to Concord from the, the northeast San Francisco, um, California, on that freeway, the speed limit's 55 because there's what everyone calls the camel humps. There are three camel humps that when you go over it at 55, if you go over it at 65, your stomach kind of jumps, you know, a little bit. And you go, oh, oh, I felt that one. She hit it at about 105, they believe. The car went airborne. <clears throat> when it came down, she was not wearing a seatbelt. She was thrown halfway through the windshield of the car. And then it rolled. Her friend that rode with her was sitting in the, in the passenger seat. She was seatbelted in. She broke, broke both femurs in her, in her legs. 
severely injured, was in the hospital for six or seven weeks re recovering from that. At the funeral service, held in a, a um, funeral home with a rather large chapel for a funeral home, we estimated there were about 500 people there, probably 400 of them, 400 of them under the age of 25. Lots of her friends from high school, college, other kids who knew kids, who knew, you, you can see it. The neighbor who loaned her the car was speaking on behalf of the family right before my homily, and he said, we know everything happens for a reason. And then he said, another one that I was going to use for, for this series, we decided not to. And then he said, I guess God needed an angel. Now, sit on that for a moment. What did he just say? God killed a 19-year-old girl in the prime of her life because God needed an angel? And there's some reason that God did this? Now, now the girl made some poor choices. She's made some, obviously, foolish choices. But God was, in, was making this happen, or God knew it was going to happen and let it happen, or God, God was, would see something that would come out of this. That's the most, well, it's the second most nervous I've ever been. Uh, I wasn't nervous before he spoke, because I, I thought, how in the world am I going to stand up and follow this? I, I carefully, I, I always have a manuscript, especially at a, at a funeral. I carefully wove through my notes and, and tried to, as gently as possible, without saying, this is complete nonsense, and pointing at the guy, but say, this is complete nonsense. It took me 20 minutes to do that in a, in a fair, I hope, fairly gracious and, and, and gentle way. But do you see the problem with this, this idea that everything happens for a reason? It just, it just breaks down and falls apart when we're talking about a young person. Uh, another one of these stories, and I'll move, move on with our, our notes. <clears throat> in South Africa, in the early 2000s, AIDS was just spreading like wildfire throughout the country. One of the reasons for this was that in, in South Africa, there's sort of a machismo culture. The men do what they want to do, and then the wives are there to serve the men. Uh, that's shifted quite a bit in the last 20 years, but 20 years ago, this is what, what, what was going on. And oftentimes, a lot of these men would go away to work for three months or six months and then come home after they were worked and earned enough money to live off for the, for the rest of the year. Well, while they're gone, they sleep with prostitutes, they engage in uh, lots of extramarital sexual activity, and many of them would come home with AIDS. And then what would they do? Well, they'd sleep with their wives, and then when they found out they were both positive, they would blame the wife. I'm telling you all of that because in the year 2006 or, or seven, I think, I led my first ever mission trip to South Africa. I led a total of three there. We built an AIDS hospice for folks who are, are dealing with AIDS. Uh, um, and we also met children who were orphans whose parents had both died because they were HIV positive and had died of complications of that. One of those boys was, was a boy named Joseph who was six years old who had never walked. He, had, he was HIV positive. He died three days after we met him. When he came out to, at the orphanage to meet us, uh, Rose Mitchell, who Julie has met, uh, who was not the leader of that orphanage, but the leader of the hospice that we built, and a friend of the orphanage leader, she came out with him in her arms, his legs useless, hanging off this side, his head off to, the, off to one side. By the way, one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen 
was one of the women in our group go up to little Joseph, who couldn't speak, couldn't walk, and she kissed him on the cheek and said, you please know you, you are loved. Think of how courageous that was. Even then, there was still a lot of misunderstanding about AIDS and, and, and how you could catch it and, and all, all that sort of, sort of a thing. How do you say to Joseph, everything happens for a reason? You just, it's just an impossible thing to, 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 to say. Now, um, that, that just sets the mood really well, doesn't it? Okay, let's, let's have some ice cream and, and, and light, blow up some balloons. I do want to look at uh, things in a little light, lighthearted way as we get into this, though, to help, to help open our minds to see why this is pervasive and, and why we want to be really careful about saying these things. And, and by the way, let me say this real, real quick. If you are in the hospital, if you go to visit somebody in the hospital, or you, oh, we got too soon on that. People are reading it. Go back, go back. Thank you. If you're in, if you're in the hospital and, and uh, um, you go to see somebody in the hospital, rather, or you visit somebody who's just lost someone, a loved one, and you don't know what to say, good. Good. Just be quiet. People who think they know what to say, I've been doing this for 40 years. I watched my dad do it for 25 before I went to seminary. Most of the time, we don't know what to say. The best thing to say is nothing if you don't know what to say. Or say, I love you. Those are the, those are the best things you can say. Uh, the, some of these things we're looking at this, uh, this month, are, or these next four weeks, are, are not there. All right. Let's, let's, get, in, let's get into um, some, some... This is from Adam Hamilton's book. Okay, Lauren, go to the next one. Thank you. Now, there's some silly extremes that happen with this stuff. <clears throat> God, you know, the silly extreme is, you know, everything happens for a reason, therefore God meant for my team to lose or win the World Series. <clears throat> how many, have you heard somebody say this on TV before? It's amazing how pervasive this is in our culture. I know there's probably a lot of Buckeye fans, but I have some really, really harsh news for you. Are you ready for this? God is not a Buckeye. I, I'm going to the Buckeye game on Saturday. It's going to be a fun basketball game. I'm going with my friend Joe. I'll, en I'll enjoy the game. I have my favorite teams. You know, we joke in my family that God is a golden bear because my dad went to the University of California and they're the golden bears. All that's joking. Um, but there's a lot of people who take that serious. You watch a player afterwards, and some of them will say something like, I just want to thank God for giving me these skills, and I know that God, God's heart and hand were behind us as our team uh, uh, won today's game. I I've heard... That a thousand times, it, it, it seems like. Uh, it's, it's pervasive in, in our culture. The next one is really goofy. And I'm pretty sure Adam tried this once on his wife. Honey, I'm sorry I forgot your birthday. It must have been the will of God. Again, that's pretty silly. That's the sort of thing you, could, you, know, you might say to somebody in a silly kind of, kind of way. Um, but there's, there's some seriousness to this as well. When, I, when Julie and I went to high school together, um, I played on the basketball team. She was a stat girl. And and uh, uh, I'll tell you another story about how we, how we met, which is how we, we anyway, I'm getting off, off topic. We beat, in December of that year, we beat the number one team in state, ranked team in state. We were picked to finish seventh in a six-team league. I mean, we were not supposed to be very good. That was, thank you for the laughter, yes. We were not very good. We beat Camas Valley on our home court by two points. It was awesome. The crowd went nuts. And, and yours truly started a we're number one chant. In chapel the next day, the dean of students called me out. We're not number one. Jesus is. And Jesus is the one who lets you win. I think that's when my call to ministry was getting sharpened a little bit. Because I thought, that's just total baloney science. Some, 
something like like that. But you see how it can get misused. It can be it can be turned into a, a, a method for for control. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, speaking of Buckeyes, um, back in the '60s, the senior minister here was a man named Arthur Techmanis. Uh, Arthur, I just went blank. That's a, it, Reverend Techmanis. Here in the '60s, he was only here three years. He was a, a refugee from uh, an immigrant from. Um, uh, Latvia, somewhere like that in, in, in Europe, and, and uh, he was invited by Woody Hayes to give the pregame prayer. His pregame prayer was, Lord, we trust that no one will, we hope and pray that no one will be injured today, and we trust that the best team will win. Woody Hayes said, you will never pray here again. <laughs> All right, so there, there's, those are some silly things. Let's go to the next one. Some very troubling questions. Why would God kill millions of Jews to die in the Holocaust? What's the plan? What's the redemptive act? It's a troubling question. Does God really want little children to die in a school shooting? The answer is no. It's just flat out no. It's extraordinarily troubling. It's interesting, though, to look at it from a, a pastoral, to look at this troubling question from a pastoral point of view. Um, one of the best books I've ever read dealing with this subject is called uh, A Grace Disguised. It's by Gerald Sitzer, S-I-T-T-S-E-R. I'll leave it up here if somebody wants to get the title and, and um, author for sure, for clear. A Grace Disguised by... Gerald Sitzer. This is, it was written in 1996. I think it was in, 19, in the early 1990s. He's taken his family, he has five children, and his wife and his mother-in-law in their van to go to a, a, a show that's being presented at a, at a reservation. I think he lived in Washington State. They had a great time at the show, but the kids were getting pretty tired. It was time to go home. They're driving on a two-lane road in, in a rural area of Washington State when he can see coming around a bend a car that looks like it's going very fast. And it is. Sitzer tries to stop, but he doesn't stop in time. It hits them head on. His wife, his mother-in-law, and one of his children are killed. He watches them die as he tries to give them CPR and, and mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. It's a, it's a horrific, horrible, terrible story. And he recounts some of the terrible, horrible things that, that people say to him. But here's what I want you to, here's, here's, I want you to hear his words. And it, it's, I, I think it's, it shows you how nuanced we can get around this. You, we don't have to say everything happens for a reason, but we can bring some some theological and emotional and psychological depth to the terrible things that happen to us in, in life. So at, at, at the trial for the man who, who killed his, half of his family, the defense attorney is arguing, since there were two of them in the car, a man and his wife who was pregnant, both of them were very drunk, both of them were thrown from, there was a truck that they were driving, sorry. Both of them were thrown from their truck. The defense attorney argued the wife was killed. The man survived. The husband survived. The defense attorney argued you can't convict him because we don't know for sure who was driving. Imagine you watched half of your family die. You saw your other three children suffering 
innumerable, numerous injuries. He says, I was enraged after the trial, which in my mind turned out to be as unjust as the accident itself. The driver did not get what he deserved more than, more, any more than the victims, whether living or dead, had gotten what they deserved. The travesty of the trial became a symbol of the unfairness of the accident itself. I had to work hard to fight off the cynicism. Now hear this. Yet, over time, I began to be bothered by this assumption that I had a right to complete fairness. Granted, I did not deserve to lose three members of my family. But then again, I'm not sure I deserved to have them in the first place. Linda, that's his wife, was a woman of superior qualities. She loved me through some very hard times. My mother lived well and served people to her life's end, and she showed a rare sensitivity to me during my rebellious teenage years. Diana Jane, his daughter, one of his daughters, sparkled with enthusiasm for life and helped to fill our home with noise and excitement. Perhaps I did not deserve their deaths, but I did not deserve their presence in my life either. Do you hear the beauty of that statement? I did not deserve their death, but perhaps I didn't deserve the beauty, uh, their, their presence in my life either. On the face of it, living in a perfectly fair world appeals to me, but deeper reflection makes me wonder, in such a world, I might never experience tragedy, but neither would I experience grace, especially the grace God gave me in the form of the three wonderful people I lost. My, my college roommate is Mike Wilson. We, we, we lived together for three years. Uh, Mike was a great athlete, a great guy. He's, he's serving as a pastor. He's a senior pastor at a small church in, in, in uh, Oregon, in the Dalles, Oregon, near, near Portland. Mike's wife died of cancer 25 years ago. She had breast cancer. It came back with a vengeance, appeared in her brain, and she was, she was gone in just a few months. M Mike said this was the single best book he read in, in recovering from his grief. He's remarried now and, and has a wonderful blended family and is, is, is doing quite well. Um, if you know anyone who's gone through terrible grief, horrible loss, I, I could highly recommend this book. It's a little dated in some ways in that it's 25 years old now. Um, but it's one of the best that I've, I've ever seen. I, I, really, I really appreciate his, his idea there that, that on the face of it, we all, we, everybody wants this fair, everything to be, work out fair and perfect, but how much of the, the grace and love have you received in your life did you deserve? If you deserved it, it wasn't grace. I mean, that's the, that's the paradox of, of, the gift, of the gift of grace. All right, I want you to look at, um, <laughs> I, I, I knew it was going to be hard going through all this stuff here, so let's put the next one up. Everything happens for a reason, but sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and you make bad decisions. <laughs> uh, Adam, Adam, that's in Adam's book. He, he, he found that on Facebook when he was working on that book, and there's a ton of truth there. There's a ton of truth there. Um, we sold a few copies of Matthew Perry's book. Anybody reading Matthew Perry's book, which I've been using for my sermon series? A couple of you have. He is so amazingly, gut-wrenchingly honest. It's really been, a, it's sad that he's, that he's gone, but it's been a joy to read his story. And he would, he would absolutely 100% agree with this. If you get to the point where you have to take 55 Vicodin a day so you don't feel sick, you've made some pretty stupid bad decisions. And that's almost a quote from, 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 his, from his book. He, he represents this in, 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 in a lot of ways. Um, my brother's story, who I, who I have the, 
I have the uh, permission from my brother uh, to share. My brother walked into the ER six months before he died with his fiancee, Doreen, uh, because he was in tremendous pain. The, the, the ER, ER doctor did a, a ton of, of tests and such, and he came back and he said, the last time I saw a liver with these kind of test results, the person was already dead. It's a miracle that you're not dead yet. <clears throat> Dave called me the next day, and he said, I've drank a lot in my life. I've had enough. And he was clean and sober until he, until he died. Three months, he was alive and well and recovering. He'd gotten rid of all the alcohol in his house. He'd, he really had turn, turned a, a, a new page in, in his life. Um, but in August of that year, he had a uh, uh, um, seizure. They found a, a lesion on his brain. They decided they needed to go in there and get that or it was going to cause more seizures. I might be messing up the medical facts, but it was something like this. And in the, he never really came out of the brain surgery. He, he, lived, he was able to, to talk with me when I saw him a week after the surgery. We were able to talk on the phone a few times, but he was kind of in and out of consciousness and just never really came back until his, his body finally gave up. My brother would, said to me, tell my story. I want people to know my story. I want them to know what, what I did to myself and how painful it is. And part of his story, though, and this is back to the, to the everything happens for a reason, part of his story is, is how much pain he went through as a kid, he was eight years younger than me. He grew up in a different family than I did. You know what I'm talking about when I say that? Have you seen families that are they're larger families with four or five kids, or maybe there's only two kids, but they're eight or nine or 10 years apart? The, I, my family, we had some issues when I was a little boy, but on the, on the most part, if you looked at us, you'd have thought it was leave it to beaver. For those of you who have, of a certain age, you might remember uh, the, the beef. You know, it's kind of how we were. By the time my brother was, was in, in junior high, my dad was heavily addicted to drugs. My dad, the pastor, was heavily addicted to drugs and a host of other things that we won't, won't get into. My brother's senior year of high school, during the quarterfinals, my brother was an athlete. He was 6'7", could jump out of the gym, had a great shot, uh, was just an unbelievable basketball player. He's recruited by Bobby Knight, if you've heard of anybody who's a basketball coach. He's recruited by Arizona State, USC, and Fresno State. Those were his top four schools that he was considering. In the quarterfinals of the state championships in Northern California, he was playing against Drake High School, which is a basketball power. Steve Lavin played for them. He coached UCLA, coaches University of San Diego now. Um, my brother schooled him. When the game's over, though, they lost by 10 points, or five points. They had a 10-point lead with five minutes to go. Drake scored 15 points to zero. My brother's high school team, Petaluma High. <clears throat> Most of them were free throws. There was a lot of yelling and screaming at the, at the referees. Referees ran off the court. Five minutes later, one of them ran back onto the court to grab his towel. <sighs> Members of my family and my brother went after the ref. I'm sitting the next day in, in the barber when I had hair, reading the sports page of the LA Times. There's my brother and a couple other family folks. One of them has just thrown a punch at the ref, whose head is like this. My brother's cocked, ready to throw a punch. As you can imagine, every recruiter who was there walked off the court and said, this kid is a troublemaker. There's a whole lot more of that whole story, but it just seems as though, especially in his early, his formative years from about age 12 or so in middle school to about 25 or 30, he just had this, this series of, of unfortunate events. Remember that, remember that little series that came out of, of, it just seemed to happen and pile up and pile up. There was a ton of pain, a ton of regret, a ton of sorrow, and a ton of sadness. 
And, and he really turned, he basically turned to alcohol to numb all of that. Um, and I, I can't believe I'm talking about my brother because I, I really, I really do miss him. <clears throat> but as I would say, he would say, it wasn't God who did this to me. It was me and the stupid choices that I made. All right, now there's a verse in the Bible uh, from Romans 8, 28. I'm going to stop at about 20 till or so and give you a chance to uh, ask any questions that you'd, you'd like, like to ask. Uh, this, this is the verse that's often cited or thought about when, when people say everything happens for a reason. It's often quoted as saying, uh, God makes all things work together for good. You know, well, if God makes all things work together for good, then that kind of fits the everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? Well, it, the Greek is really hard to, to translate. You can come up with a variety of different things. Here's one um, that uh, is, is found in the uh, New Revised Standard Version, but it's in the footnotes, and it's much better than the one that's up in the regular text. And when you see a, a footnote in the Bible that says other ancient authorities, that means other ancient manuscripts. So there's a Greek manuscript out there, or two, or three, or four, or more, that matches up with this. We know in all things God works for good. Now, maybe it's just the grammar that's confusing there, but it's, it, does that make sense? Do you see how it makes more sense? In all things, God works for good. No matter what's happening, God wants to work for good. Terrible, awful things might be happening, but somehow, some way, God wants to insert God's self into all that. I, I like this, this, this next one. This is from The Message, uh, which is a paraphrase. And so when you get a paraphrase, you're getting more of the person's theology than you are the, of a strict translation. This is Eugene Peterson's translation. That's why... We can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. Now, again, it's, that can be kind of problematic. I'm not sure I like it totally. But I, I, see, what Peterson's trying to say here is God, God is working with us, for us, working with us in our lives in, in whatever way is possible. And then one more I want you to see. This one's from the New International Version. And the NIV is one of my least favorites, by the way. It's... Um, it's got a very heavy, fundamentalist, evangelical bent. Um, but occasionally, they get it right. And we know that in all things, God works for the good. You see that? In all things, God works for the good. Whatever things are happening in your life, God is working for the good uh, there. Um, all right, one, next, next slide. This is from Adam's book. God is more like a parent who invites his children to make their own choices even though they will sometimes make the wrong ones. I think that's a pastorally significant thing to say. Uh, um, I, I would imagine for all the parents in the room, I know this is true for Julie and me, sometimes you know, you know what your kid's gonna do before they do it. Does that mean they're gonna do it? Not necessarily, they may not. Um, if, if, they're, if they're running around on the stage and they get up to the edge, I'm pretty sure every parent in the room would run over and, and make sure that, that he or she doesn't fall, fall off, off the stage, of course. But, but it's, it, the idea here is that, that and this is, Adam deals with this by, um, by kind of that center place between deism, where God just kicked things off and stepped away, and, and predestination, where God is involved in, in everything. Oh, oh, I'll get that in a moment. Um, I, think, I think there's some pastoral truth here. That we may know what our kids are going to do, but you know sometimes you have to let kids fail. Uh, that you know the phrase "helicopter parents." 
Have you heard, heard of this? Where moms and dads just hover over their kids constantly, so much so that he or she never gets a chance to mature and grow and, and deal with failure. I mean, it's like the participation trophies, which is a real thing, you know? Um, if, if everybody gets a trophy, what, what difference does a trophy make? It, it makes no sense. I, I, think, I think our society is moving away from that, that tendency. Um, it didn't happen in our house, I can tell, I can tell you that. Um, although, the one who was much clearer and much more on target on not trying to protect the kids was not me, just in case you're, you're curious. It, it, was, it was Julie who was the, the, the solid parent in our, in our life. And then Adam in his book here at this point talks about um, uh, Deuteronomy 30, which is Adam, or Adam, uh, Moses' final speech to the, to the uh, Israelites just before he dies and not long before they cross the Jordan in, into the promised land. He recites the Ten Commandments, he recites much of the law, and then at the end, he says, you will have blessings and curses in life. I implore you, my friends, to choose life. Choose life. Now, if you choose life, does that mean you won't have issues? And I mean, we already know the answer to the question. Just read Gerald Sitzer's book, the first 10 pages, and how awful and terrible and horrible that, that accent was. But what, what, what Adam's trying to say, what I'm trying to say, what Moses, I think, was trying to say, you can choose one way or the other. Neither one is a guarantee that great things or bad things are going to happen. But if you choose life, you'll be surrounded by family. You'll be in relationships. You'll belong to a family or friends or, or a community of faith or, or whatever it might be. You'll, you'll have a sense of belonging when you, when you make that a, as your, as your clear, clear choice. <clears throat> I wanted to say something real quick about uh, predestination. Is that a new, for anybody that's a new term, that's not a new, good, good. When I was in seminary, um, Julie worked at a little Presbyterian church. Um, and, and we found out after she'd been there a while that I, I needed a, um, uh, that, that they needed a youth director. And I was looking for a youth job and said, sure. And they, they, I, I lied about being, knowing a lot about Presbyterians. Um, I, but I had a great time with the youth group. It was one of the finest youth groups I ever, ever had in all my years of youth ministry. Uh, but I also taught, occasionally taught adult Bible study groups. And it's one adult Bible study of about 15 people, like on a Saturday morning earlier or Sunday, something, I, I forget. And I opened up by saying, we read some of the texts where Jesus calls some of his disciples. And I said, if you were Jesus, who would you have called? Would you have called somebody different? Who would you have called? What would you have done? And, and this one woman, her name was B. Her daughter was in my youth group. She's very tall, brilliant, smart, uh, skilled, successful, all that. She just said, oh, Glenn, Jesus didn't choose. They were predestined. The ones he chose are the only ones possible. And I kind of laughed, and she's like, you're laughing? Went, oh. Um, so there are people out there who still think that way, that everything's been set, and that's the way everything uh, has, to, has to go. Um, I think we choose life. Someone's asked, someone asked me once, uh, somebody came to see me, very, very sincere, felt like they were outside of the will of God, like they were supposed to be doing something uh, that, uh, else than what they were doing. And I said, I said to them, in, in this choose life idea, I said, I, I believe that if I'd said no to my call, I wouldn't necessarily be outside of the will to God, the, the will of God. I could be selling beer at, at Oracle Park where the Giants play in San Francisco and still be in the will of God if I'm practicing love for my neighbor in my life. You know, we, some, so that, that's also part of this. It's not about you have this path, you must follow this path and do, do these things. But I have noticed, and here's, here's the last part that we'll get to some questions. I have noticed what Adam calls God incidences. Put that up there. 
God incidences. You know, sometimes there are coincidences that happen and, and it just feels like, oh, was this a nudge from God? In, in March of 2016, I got an email from Ginny Barney, who is the search chair, search committee chair for the position of senior minister here at First Community Church. She said, uh, your name was mentioned in a survey we did of the congregation. I just preached a few months there before. And we would like, we, we would like to reach out to you and ask you to apply for, for this position. I told Julie about it, talked about it. Um, one of my best friends in the world is John Ross. Some of you remember John Ross used to be on our staff. I was on retreat with him a couple weeks later out in Arizona. We were sitting on a campfire last one, late one night. He said, you got that email, didn't you? I said, yeah, you did too, didn't you? He said, yeah. And we talked about that, what that might mean, and had a great conversation. The main thing we wanted to be was friends, no matter what happened it, uh, with it. Um, and then decided maybe the best thing would be that we neither one of us get that job. And then about, I don't know, two or three weeks later, Julie said to me, it was about a month after I got the email, hey, have you responded to that email in, in Columbus? I said, no, I'm just, I just, I need a nudge. I need something. I need the little hand on my back from the spirit that says, yeah, why don't you talk to them? The next day, I got an email from Ginny Barney saying, hey, it's been a month since we emailed you. Would really love to have your materials. Can you send me your Vita and all the, all the rest? And, and I went, I guess that's a nudge. <laughs> Adam calls those God incidences. I, I really like that. He tells a story about a time his wife was out of town and he didn't want to go home and, and cook by himself. So he, he just left his office and went to go have some dinner somewhere in Kansas City. And for some unknown reason, he just felt like, I don't want to go there. I'm going to go this other place. And he stopped, turned around, and went to the other place. He went in and sat down. A woman came over to him and said, Pastor Adam, you don't know me, but I'm a member of your church. I'm going through a horrible time right now. Would you give me a few minutes to talk? Can I talk with you? He talked to her for an hour, was able to be the pastor she needed in that moment. Now, that's not everything happens for a reason. That's Adam paying attention to those little nudges that hit him in his life. That's, that's me saying, you know, listening to things. Uh, uh, there was somebody, they're not in this room, uh, about a year ago, came up to me and said something that was just unbelievably spot on in what I was dealing with in my life in that moment. And it was basically a word of, of encouragement. And I would call that a God incidence, where somebody picked up something in me. Maybe, maybe it's a psychological skill or something. I, I don't know. But I, I love these kinds of stories. Um, uh, and another one for, for you. <clears throat> you may remember we did a, a strategic plan about three years ago. We're living out uh, that plan right, right as we speak. Even this event is part of that plan. One of the things that we, we named was, was create uh, um, lots of worship experience opportunities for people outside of the norm on Sunday mornings. This is one of those, one of those things that came out of that, that plan. Another one was we want our voice to be heard again in the community for community justice. We used to be a strong voice out there and we'd be very active and we're not as much as we were. We want to see that happen. Like a month after that was approved by the, by the governing board, sent out to the congregation, I'm back in my office after the 11 o'clock service, getting my coat back on to go out to lunch with Julie or something, when Carrie Schwab, who was on our staff back then, she had Christy Glazer's job, uh, director of membership. She, I can hear her running down the hallway. She's like, there's a man here. He's a student at, at, at the Methodist Seminary of Ohio, which is just not, not too far from here, that way. Um, not too far from here. He's, got a, he's about to graduate with a degree in social justice. He's looking for an internship. I'm like, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> 
I came out here, I met Tim. I'm sure many of you remember Tim. Tim and, and, and his wife uh, are, are still uh, active members in, in the church. They were here Sunday. And we shook hands, and I said, I, I went home that day and said, we found our intern. I didn't even, it just, the, the Holy Spirit, I guess, just sent, sent the intern there. I, I think that's a God incidence. Um, another thing in, in my life, I woke up one morning, and, and this particular church member was on my mind. I don't know why. I hadn't dreamed about them. I hadn't really been thinking about them much, but just, they just came to mind. And so I made a cold call. I said, I don't know why I'm calling, but I just felt like I should call you. Are you doing okay? And then I heard tears. I think God incidences are, are real. Does that mean God's pulling strings? Does that mean all that stuff's happening? No, no, not, not at all. It, it, it means that the that God, I believe, is in work, at work within, within our lives, within the community of, of, of the world. All right, that's a lot for me for um, 42 minutes. Let me stop there, and, and um, if you have a question, I'm not going to try to run around with the mic. If you could speak up very clearly and very loudly, that would be great. Questions that you may have on this evening. If you have one that's really burning and you're thinking, no, maybe I shouldn't ask that, please do. Yes, please. For some of us, it's easier for God to count than others. <laughs> James and I, I think between us, we have 16, 17 hairs, perhaps, May, maybe. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when a, what, what's the word from Jesus in one of the Gospels? When a sparrow falls, God, God knows it. It's, it, it, I don't know that the, the, the specific verse, God counts, every, knows every hair in your head, that, that might be in there. It's, it's not so much about God understands, knows everything that's going to happen, as much as it is a, is a sign from Jesus of how much God cares for us. God knows us, just, just as a parent knows her child, knows her, uh, or knows his son, or his daughter, um, uh, and you know everything about them, and you just care deeply for them. Um, I think that's more about what that, that verse has to say. Yeah. Larry, please. Yeah, that's that's, and, and uh, it'll sound it'll sound overly critical. I'm not trying to be overly critical, but there's a preacher in Texas with a big arena with twenty thousand people and really perfect hair, um, and nice suits, who who preaches that kind of gospel, and where it really breaks down is is the problem of evil, and and how do you deal with the problem of evil when everything's about blessings, when everything's about do this, do this, do this to get all these things, when those things don't happen. Um, the implication is you cause that because of something in your, in your life. You know, there's a, there's a point where Jesus, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's Luke 19, somewhere in there, uh, in, in Luke, where um, these, these folks come to him and say, hey, what, why, why did God allow the, tire, the Tower of Siloam to fall and kill 17 people or something like that? And why were all these Pharisees killed uh, by, by, the, by the Romans? I mean, they're like, 
there were just 500 of them slaughtered by the Romans. I think they're in a synagogue when it, when it happened. And Jesus' response is essentially, well, everyone needs to be saved. And it's really a harsh response. You know, sometimes Jesus might not have been a good pastor. <laughs> he was a brilliant rabbi and teacher and preacher and, 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 and all the rest. But I think what Jesus is saying there is stuff happens. Bad things happen. Uh, in the meantime, what are we doing to create a life that's worth living, to create a world that's worth living in? What are we doing to, to bring new life and new hope to, to everyone? Yeah, that's, that's horrible, it's terrible, it's awful. So it, even Jesus refuses to get in, into any kind of simplistic uh, discussion like that. And Larry, I, I, Julie and I both heard plenty of sermons that if you're doing something wrong, you're going to get in trouble in the end. Now that's kind of like that one funny quote I put up there. You know, sometimes it's your stupid bad decisions, sure. But it's not God up there with a lightning bolt saying, uh, 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 Julie waited till that, Julie never did. Glenn waited till the last minute to get that assignment done. Boom, it make something bad happen to him. That, that's not it at all. Um, but yeah, that, that theology, and, and in fact, not only is it, is, it also exists in our church. I mean, I've heard plenty of people in this church, every church I've served, who are certain there must be something I've done that's caused this. Gerald Sitzer talks about that in his book, um, uh, A Grace Disguised. Uh, about a woman whose daughter was driving a car <clears throat> and was hit by another car that they got out of control. It wasn't a drunk driver or anything. Her daughter survived, and the, the, her daughter's friend in the, in the front seat next to her was killed. And the mother feels terrible that somehow she was a bad parent, that somehow she could have done something to fix that. And not only that, but, but they all, all three mothers of the three people killed know each other. And, and there's just this terrible, horrible grief and guilt. Um, that's not an unusual human response when terrible things happen. Right. That's a puppeteer rule, and, and, and you, you know, um, on 9-11, there was some really bad theology out there that, that God was, uh, was let this happen because of gays and lesbians in, in the United States. Um, Julie and I have a friend who said that, that, that actual words. Well, it has to be. This, everything happens for a reason. I mean, she said everything happens for a reason, and the reason is God's trying to root out homosexuality. And for, first of all, pick out, a few, pick out a few planes. There were babies on one or two of those planes. God's killing babies because he doesn't like gay. I mean, it's just insane kind of theology and I, I told Julie what you should do next time you see her is hit her in the leg and just tell her everything happens for a reason you know um, probably wouldn't go over good uh, yes please Marilyn you never like the saying everything happens for a reason good thank you thank you for sharing that thank you Hmm. He said it's backwards. There's a reason everything happens. Not everything happens for a reason, but there's a reason everything happens. Say a little bit more. <laughs> Have you met my grandfather? <laughs> there's a saying, it's always supposed to 
And, and the, the part to be careful with is it, 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 we may not even know the reason for it happening. Yeah, sure. But there is a reason that it happened. It's not God's will. Right. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of what Larry was saying. You know, um, you all, you all, have you heard the sermon, Alex's Death, by William Sloan Coffin? It's one of the most famous sermons ever. Dick Wing quoted it about once a year while he was here. His son is, 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 lived in Boston. His son's driving around some wet road on Boston Harbor. Uh, his brakes go out. He loses control of the car. It jumps the guardrail. It goes down the hill, and he's killed. The next two days later... Uh, they're receiving guests in their home, and a woman walks in from his church. He was a, he was a pastor at Riverside Church forever, the famous church in New York City. Walks in with, hands him a pie, and she says, I just don't understand the will of God. Well, William Sloan Coffin is like God's right-hand person. I mean, he has this big, booming voice and this big, booming personality. He says, I'll say you don't understand the will of God. Was it God's will that my son's brakes were bad? Was it God's will that his wipers weren't working very good? Was it God's will that he had three beers before he went for a drive? Were all those God's will? You don't know anything about God's will. He told that story in his sermon for his son's funeral. And then he said this, this word, and this, this is just pastorally beautiful. The first of all our hearts to break at the news of Alex's death was the heart of God. And, and I, I think that's probably the best summary I could give. I saved that toward the end because that, I could have started with that. We just go home early. Um, that really is the, 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 my, my theology. Robert Capon is the guy who says, imagine your car slides off the road and you're stuck in a ditch and you're in Fargo, uh, North Dakota, Fargo, North Dakota, and it's minus 25 and the wind chills minus 50 and you're not moving anywhere and you're not have enough gas to, to survive and you don't, there's no way you can walk because you're miles and miles and miles from anywhere. That the, the God we worship is a God who, who comes down, opens the, the passenger side of the, of the car. Capon says he's got a half a bottle of scotch left and God sits down next to him and says, here you go, buddy. Take a swig. Whatever you're about to go through, I'm going to go through with you. In other words, God is there present in our dying even. Um, another great story. You had a question right here. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Every, did you hear what she said? Kate Bowler from Duke says that everything happens. Period. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Thank you. I'm going to use that probably Sunday. Lenny. Yeah, right. So, and that's, that's, that's really well said. And sometimes that's what you need when, when life sucks. You just need somebody to know, hey, this is awful and terrible, and I just need a hand to hold. I need, somebody to, I need a shoulder to cry on. Um, I said it in a sermon a few weeks ago. Um, is there anything more you want in life than a hand to hold, a shoulder to cry on, and an ear to listen? Um, no matter what we're, we're going through. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. 
Do I see another hand over here somewhere? One of the one of the sayings I was going to use put put in this in this series I didn't decide not to is it reminded me of it is when God closes a window God opens a door, um, you know uh, barf. Um, if you if that works for you that's okay for you that's fine that's why that's why I didn't I didn't I decided not to get after that one because that might actually be helpful to some people and I don't think it's all that that harmful either. The four we're looking at. Um, uh, tonight's and then the next three love the sinner hate the sin God said it I believe it that settles it and God won't God won't give you more than you can handle those four I think are the most harmful and the most dangerous that are that are out there of, of, of these all right it's about five till got time for a couple more questions if someone has one thank you everybody for oh well Katie I see your hand yes Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting thing that, that Paul says there. Now, he's writing to a Christian community. He's not writing and saying, this is only true for us and all those other people out there, this is not true for. He's, work, he's working within the Christian community. And the Christian community, when they love God, they're also loving their neighbor. And that's a key aspect for him. And in, in that practice of loving God and loving neighbor, then we do experience the blessing of community, the blessing of belonging, and, and all those things. And then later on, a couple verses later, there's that very famous text. Where there, for there is, this is still Romans 8, there is nothing in all creation neither height nor depth nor, nor power nor sword uh, nor life or death nor any, I'm just paraphrasing, nor anything else in all creation that can separate, separate us from the love of God. And I, I've really taken that as kind of a universal explanation or exclamation that God's love is the one thing that's going to outlast all of this. None of those things, none of the things we've experienced can ultimately separate us from, from God's love. Um, Romans 8 is a, is a powerful text all the way through. And I just still wanted to put a little bit up there, but there's some more. Yes, Larry. Uh, God can use evil for good. It's like the it's like the Mister Rogers quote: "When bad things happen, look for the helpers." You know, when, when, when the Twin Towers came down, uh, look, look at the helpers, the, the firefighters and police officers who gave their lives, men and women who, who gave their lives, who were there helping, the people who came there day after day after day to clean up the rubble, to uh, minister, et cetera. That's, that, that, that's the phrase that comes, comes to my mind as, as well there. Um, yeah, I, I get the question asked. Oh, here, I'll do a little Hitler comment for you, then we'll, then we'll be done. You know, a lot of people all the time ask me, what about Hitler? When I, when I, because I believe in universal salvation. I believe God's going to get everybody together in the great getting together time. And the question is, what about God? What about Hitler? And I said, number one, it's not my problem. <laughs> it's God's. Number two, I believe God's love is more powerful than Hitler's evil. Now, what is that going to mean? What's that going to look like? How's that going to be worked out? I have no idea, but that's my belief. That's my, that's my ultimate trust. All right. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll, be, then we'll, we'll go home for the evening. Gracious one, we're grateful for the sacred words of our texts, for communities of faith that have for centuries, even thousands upon thousands of years, listened carefully for these words, 
understood them and re-understood them and reinterpreted them and interpreted them again. We're grateful that your spirit doesn't depend on us to get the answers right. Your spirit simply is here to invite us to live in love. May that love guide us in all our days, in all our lives, and in all our ways. In Christ's name, amen. Good night, y'all.